Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time for your weekly DC Spotlight. Talking about the books that are coming out for the week of July 12th, 2022. About 10 books this week. Not a huge week. Uh, I suppose with Comic-Con on the horizon, I don't know how much that affects schedule. Uh, I did mention previously that we have like all the books for July already. Because, yeah, the PR or press department at DC is very, very small now, so I'm sure they're trying to get ahead of the game. Going to be a weird show San Diego this year. DC doesn't even have a presence, although they have a, a ton of panels. So it's kind of disappointing. I mean, they've got so many new writers, people I haven't had the chance to meet in person. would be nice if there was a place where they might gather, where I might uh, I might see them. I'm sure I'll run into plenty of, plenty of people, though, but... Uh, that being said, this week, oh, man, real roller coaster week. The books seem to be either really strong or or pretty poor. There wasn't kind of nothing in the middle that I would say is average, either below average or or good, like exceptionally good. So I yeah, don't know. I, 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 it was I, a rough week. Yeah, I tend to agree agree with you. This week was a little. Uh, I, I will say though that. Uh, Overall, when I actually, because I actually did count, I think I mentioned this last week, when I when I actually do count the total number of DC books I'm reading, I'm, I'm actually at 60% of my enjoyment, like where I'm solidly enjoying 60%. Uh, unfortunately, this week in particular seems to contain most of that, <laughs> a little bit a higher proportion of that 40%. I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, but in any event, I want to... I'm going to do my best to stay positive, and I can always replace my criticism with humor in my vain attempt to do so. So <laughs> so let's have some fun, Jason. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unfortunately, even a, like a 60% average is not anything to – I mean, I suppose it depends on what you're talking about. If you're in school, yeah. you know, 60% on the test, is that's like a D. But if you're a baseball player and you get on base 60% of the time, you're a multimillionaire well, superstar. <laughs> I would, I would just give you a little bit of pushback that by giving you a different perspective that in my entire comic book reading life, like I've been reading since the mid 70s, 1970s, I've, I never, when I was younger, read every single DC comic. We're reading every DC comic that comes out. So of course we're not going to enjoy it all. Even if they were batting a hundred percent, you know, whatever perfect batting average. I'm in, you know, we all have different sensibilities. So even, you know, just because, you know, you know, comic books are ultimate objective, but uh, I think I think sixty percent, frankly, you know, f- I, I look back at the New Fifty Two Rebirth. I, I wasn't liking everything I read in the New Fifty Two or everything I read in Rebirth. So, you know, I this is me trying to be as positive as possible, saying that well, sixty percent is not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> yeah, I know you're right. You're right. There are there are a number of books that if we weren't getting press previews and doing the DC Spotlight where we talk about every book that I would not read. There's no way I would read it. It's just, it's not, you know, it's not for me. I'm not enjoying it. So yeah, you're right. You're, you are hundred percent correct on that. So in fact, there was one book that I read this week that I told my, I was like, you know, I just need to stop reading this. That means I won't have time to, you know, I won't have anything to say when we do the spotlight, but if whatever I'm saying is only negative every week, then, you know, what's the point? Maybe I'll stop reading it. So, yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, Let's start with I Am Batman. It's issue number 11 from writer John Ridley. We have Christian Doucet and Tom Dernick as the artists. Rex Locus on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Bit of a cliffhanger ending last time. And this, it's interesting. It doesn't pick up right where it left off. I mean, if, if you look at the first page, you would think, oh, it does. But then you realize that we, we actually have a time jump here. And it's one of the officers 
who well, actually both of them that are um, kind of giving their recap, I guess, of, of the events, Detective Chubb being the more truthful, I suppose, and Detective <laughs> Keenan being the – like, man, I, I can't stand this guy. I, I really want to see him get what's coming to him. So – uh, anyways, what did you think about the title? Uh, I actually, actually, this is one of my uh, one of my better titles this week. I've been enjoying I Am Batman, and this particular issue I enjoyed for a number of reasons. I thought that uh, writer John Ridley's character work he continues to grow the characters and evolve the characters of the Jace uh, of Jace uh, of the Fox family, and uh, he continues to build the mythology of New York City, the relationship between Batman, this new detective Chubbs that we're just getting to know, who uh, basically stopped uh, a police shoot. This detective of Keenan had was, was going to kill Man Ray, uh, despite the fact that he was already incapacitated by uh, Jace Fox Batman. And uh, we get Renee, Renee, Renee Montoya ends up showing up here uh, when she was, I, I believe she was the commissioner at one point in Gotham City, at which point. At one point in Gotham City, she basically relocated and had Detective Chubbs relocated in New York City. And ultimately, she's been uh, Mayor Villanova in this issue. She offers Montoya the uh, the job of commissioner of New York City, the commissioner of police for, for New York City. And and this issue ends ultimately with Jace Fox as Batman, you know, spying on this new Mr. Spearhead uh, character who meets with Mayor Villanova. Uh, Mayor Villanova being very concerned about this sort of hot list that exists where a lot of people that are on it end up getting killed and they were killed by Man Ray. Well, Man Ray, Man Ray is, uh, ultimately may have been incapacitated, but the reality is the danger might still be out there. And ultimately, we're left with uh, Rene Montoya as the question showing up wanting to know uh, exactly uh, who killed, who was the real killer, who killed Anarchy. And so I, I think this is really, I like what John Ridley is doing here. You know, uh, just as, as a general comment in terms of how the whole this whole uh, series has started going back to Future State, it started off in a very sort of disorganized, kind of discombobulated manner that uh, was, you know, we criticized John Ridley somewhat heavily for that. But I think it's starting to pay dividends now, at least in my view. We're starting to see that character work. Where I, I particularly like, you know, th this Jace Fox family. We got Lucius Fox and Luke Fox still living in Gotham City. We got uh, the uh, Tiffany and Tammy Fox, who is recovering from her, her wounds coming, coming out of first date. And sister, younger Tiffany Fox, along with Jace Fox and Mrs. Fox, their mother, who's uh, running a sort of an impact facility to help uh, women who just got out of prison to, to rehabilitate and get back into society. Uh, we, we, got, we got that character work going on here, and, and it works. Uh, Tiffany is very, she feels useless. She feels she, she should have protected her older daughter, Tammy. We got some, uh, we got some guilt. We got some motivation. We got Detective, Detective Chubbs, who is frankly sort of, she feels, Detective Chubbs is depressed. She's not really like she she doesn't have a lot of good rapport with the other detectives uh, at one point in this uh, in this issue her and detective Whitaker are under fire uh, upon following a lead following some leads to try to uh, appre trying to get a hold on some some gun trafficking that's going on and they're under fire and detective and detective Keenan and the other detectives are taking their time responding to their call for backup. Uh, so detective Chubbs here, she feels depressed. She feels upset. She feels she does. She's lonely. She doesn't have a lot of friends. Uh, even Jace Fox has more friends than she does. At least Jace Fox at a minimum has a, he's got a very strong family. He's also a billionaire. That doesn't help. And we also get a new headquarters in this issue, a Helix headquarters, a headquarters called the Phoenix called, pardon me, 
called the Helix, which is located up uh, below underground likely be new satellite headquarters for Mrs. Fox uh, Rehabilitation Center for women that have just been re- recently released from prison. So I thought, and all that happened in just this issue. I, I thought this was very well done. And I, my, my only regret is that I know that a lot of people are sort of maybe not given this series the credit that it deserves. Or maybe, let me rephrase that. This took some time to find its footing. But it's finally found, and I think it found. I think I found it a number of issues ago. But this is. I find this to be consistently the more enjoyable Batman. Uh, that might change now with Sardaski on on Batman one since Batman one twenty five, which we reviewed last week, and we you know we enjoyed. But Jace Fox Batman, I'm enjoying this, and I'm. This feels like he's a unique Batman, and I, and I'm enjoying this, and I wish more people would give it give it a shot. What do you think of it? Oh, your mute's on. Sorry, uh, Jace, you're on mute. Oh, sorry, didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it as well. Um, yeah, it, it did, and we've said this before. It did start off kind of, kind of clunky, and it, when it really hit its stride is when Jace Fox. I've said this before. Got out of Gotham City, out from under the shadow of the Bat, if you will, no pun intended. Uh, the shadow of Batman of Bruce Wayne, and kind of doing his own thing in uh, in New York City. Now, I don't think Montoya transferred Chubb. I mean, it was Chubb's choice to leave because of what had happened. Right. Um, but now, yeah, she feels put upon because, yeah, she left Gotham because she felt like Montoya had it out for her. And now, you know, here she is in the New York police department. And all of a sudden, you know, she's having a hard enough time fitting in there. And to her credit, it's because it's an old boy. It's an old boys club. You have that aspect of it. She's not fitting in that in that way. And also the old police chief was was corrupt. He was crooked. He was, you know, granted, maybe he wasn't, um, you know, out and out evil, but he sure, you know, was greasing his own palms and had a certain way of doing things, even uh, if it was in contrast to what the mayor told him to do in direct conflict, even he would do what he wanted to do. And a lot of the guys that are left in, in the department are still loyal to him. So there's, there's biggest scumbags in my mind as the chief of police was. So I didn't take it as, Whitaker and Chubb going to meet his uh, his CI, his criminal informant, and and then these gun runners ambushing them. I took it as Keenan sent those guys. That he set them up. He told the criminal informant, "Tell them to be there at this time. We're going to have people there to take them out." So I did. I, I I thought it was one step further. Huh. I thought I didn't think it was just not. Hey, they're not backing up. You know, fellow officers. I took it as they're proactively trying to take out T- Chubb and Whitaker because, again, Chubb, Chubb shot him. Chubb sh- shot Keenan. <laughs> so Keenan, man, he deserves every bit that's coming to him, uh, and I hope he gets it. So, so that's kind of the, yeah. the action part of the story. The other, the political parts, um, again, I, I think it, it just works so much better out from under the shadow of Gotham City, um, talking about the, the – familial relationships of the Fox family, the machinations of the mayor's office and NYPD. And, you know, you put in some supervillains, although I will give credit to John Ridley. He's not going, you know, way out into left field for these villains. So far, the villains that we've had feel very street level. Uh, And again, I think that suits uh, Jace Fox. It suits the, um, the kind of tone of story that Ridley's telling. 
So even Man Ray, I mean, he's swinging around an, an iron that's connected to a you know a chain. So that's not <laughs> not exactly <laughs> the most sophisticated of weaponry. So uh, I do like that. I will say that I thought the art in this issue was a little inconsistent. I like Christian Ducey art. I like Eduardo Panseca art. Um, in fact, I would say I'm, I'm, I love both of their art styles. But I think something got lost in the collaboration between the two. Um, it, it just caught me out a couple times, um, specifically on um, I can't remember her name. The the, the Jace Fox's mother, the matron of, of yeah, Fox I, I forget. I can't remember her first name either. That's yeah. why I called her Mrs. Fox. <laughs> yeah, she she looks so much older than we've ever seen her drawn before. Really old in a couple of panels. And then Tiffany Fox looks significantly, she looks like she's 12 years old. Uh, you know, and I always thought she was like 17 ish. So I, I, she looked like a little kid. Yeah. So that, that kind of threw me as well. So I don't know if that's an editorial failing or just because, you know, we're having some artists on here who aren't as familiar with these characters. Not really sure, but, uh, I, I am enjoying this title as much or more than I than I ever have, so I definitely recommend picking it up. And I agree, it's 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 the Batman title to be reading right now, and whether that will change with Chip Zdarsky, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Okay. Uh, all right, up next, more Batman, of course, because we are talking about DC. It is Future State Gotham, number 15, Batman at War, number three, Know Your Enemy, written by Dennis Culver. Art is by Giannis Milano Giannis. Cover by Simone DeMeo, letter by Troy Petrie. Um, there are no colors, and you know I know we've um, kind of beat that to death here. Uh, I just I find it a little problematic, and especially with, in particular, this story that they're telling, right? Where we have Hush, this Hush of, of Future State Gotham, this future storyline that has undergone plastic surgery to make himself look like Bruce Wayne, and then we've got the actual Bruce Wayne who's back. And we've got Damien who is um, dressed up like uh, a Batman as well. And we've got Nightwing who's a Batman. And we have Jace Fox who is Batman. So that's all these Batman that are at war. Um, And for the most part, you can tell them apart because obviously Nightwing's costume looks different than the Batman 666 Damien uh, Wayne version of Batman that's different from the Jace Fox version. Um, but Jace Fox, his costume's not that different from Hush and from Bruce Wayne Batman. And Bruce Wayne Batman and Hush, their costumes are, are very similar. So it, it's like I have to work kind of hard to see, okay, wait, which who is this that's talking? Okay, it's Hush as Batman who looks like Bruce Wayne. Got it. This is actual Bruce Wayne. Like you shouldn't be making it harder <laughs> for readers. To, I mean, especially considering – I, at this point, I can only think that the reason they're doing it in black and white, the reason they're using the particular artists they're choosing on Future State Gotham is to give it a manga feel um, because these artists are certainly influenced by that sort of style. Um, and hey, people that love manga, they're used to reading in black and white or what have you. Um, but this is still a – these are still new characters and still a new universe that they're trying to get acclimated to. So if you're – if the whole reason – and I don't know if this is the reason they're doing it, but if the reason you're doing it in black and white – and choosing the artist that you're choosing is to give it that manga feel, then make it as easy as possible to distinguish. Uh, and I don't know, maybe I'm just not a black and white reader. Maybe people that read manga uh, have a, have an easier time to you know, figure out who, which characters are which. I don't know. Like give them different thought bubbles or, yeah. or uh, speech bubbles or so, do something. Um, yeah. That being said, 
other than that, I, I'm actually enjoying the story. It's, you know, as much as I have complained about it in the past and Rocky and I have both said, we don't know why this exists. We don't know who's asking for this storyline, this future state uh, timeline or whatever you want to call it. That's not, we know it's no longer going to come to pass. The magistrate have been defeated in current day DC continuity. So what the heck are we talking about here? Um, why is this, why is, does this continue to be a thing? I don't know, but you know, I'm interested enough that I'm, I'm continuing to read it and I'm, I'm curious to see where it's going to go. Uh, they are sort of given Nightwing a little bit of a heel turn. He's uh, fighting against other members, you know, he's uh, of the bat family. He's taken that brain, um, chemical, the, the, the venom, if venom is the, you know, physical, um, enhancing chemical of, of Gotham city, then brain is the mental enhancing chemical of, of Gotham city. And he's taken a big dose of it and supposedly knows the future and everything so much so that he's willing to, to fight, to physically fight against the rest of the bat family to get his way. Cause he thinks he knows best. It's not the best look. Um, it's not the best portrayal of, of Dick Grayson. Um, I don't know, maybe DC feels Dick Grayson's become too goody goody between this and him being Lord of vampires and DC vampires. Um, it's like, man, they really are going to crap on Dick Grayson this year, I guess. Um, they, I guess they didn't learn their lesson with Wally West. So maybe they're trying to piss off, uh, Nightwing fans. I don't know. Um, but yeah, the story it's okay. But at the same time, I feel like if it went away, I wouldn't really miss it. Um, it's, this is one of those books that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be reading if we weren't doing the DC spotlight. So, uh, as far as the backup, it's a, it's a backup from Batman urban legends from last year. It's maybe a year old. I don't think it's quite a year old uh, with Cassandra Kane um, fighting in that same reality, that same future state Gotham. It was okay. You know, it was only average when I read it the first time. It's only average here. Um, the art is pretty strong, though. So, uh, anyways, what did you think, Rocky? Anything to add? Uh, well, I love the backup because I, I like I like the backup more than you do when we first reviewed it back when it was in Batman Urban Legends. Uh, I thought I thought it was it was just excellent. It was fantastic and a, and just a real cool uh, Cassandra Kane. I, I love the backup. Uh, I I don't really have much to add. You, you echoed my comments exactly on Future State Gotham. I'll just double down on it and say that. I, this doesn't. This sort of stopped feeling like future state to me because number one, future state timeline's been resolved. It's not an issue anymore for us. And secondly, this doesn't feel that it's they're fighting. It feels feels like it really feels like a bunch of white white skinned black haired guys are fighting over the Batman mantle, and they're not they're fighting each other. They're not fighting a villain. That's what it feels like to me. And it it and because of that. In fairness, I haven't given De Dennis Culver enough credit, uh, as I probably should. I should probably read this story, but uh, I'm not into black and white. I'm not a big fan of manga. I don't like the manga style. Cle clearly, this is geared toward that crowd. Uh, at least I hope so. I hope it has an audience. Uh, the sales, actually, I mean, all of DC sales right now seem to be really hurting. And this is not any demonstrably <laughs> worse than any other DC title in the sales charts, quite frankly, because it has Batman in the title. But I'm, I'm a little I'm at I'm at a loss for this. Uh, again, why this uh, particular uh, comic exists. I just want to say this. This is fifth. This is the 15th issue. And the storyline is not complete. We still don't have an ending to the future state storyline. We're 15 issues in. I'm openly wondering when is future state Gotham going to end? 
When is this story going to end? When are they going to defeat the magistrate? Are they ever going to defeat the magistrate? Is this a different earth where the magistrate will forever exist and they're constantly going to be, all these Batmen are going to constantly be fighting the magistrate? This is the sort of question I have a long time reader. So they've really, DC really dropped the ball on that. Their marketing department is not very good anymore. So I don't know. It's a legitimate question when longtime readers like ourselves are asking why this title exists. It's a legitimate question and it should be answered because I don't, uh, where does this fit into the timeline? I I don't get it. It's not consistent. It's completely out of timeline of the future state Gotham that we know. And uh, in any event, you know, you know, um, yeah, beyond that, I, I just, I just shake my head and I, I just skim read this and I'll continue to skim read it for as long as it's in existence. I, uh, you obviously go go back to what we were saying before. I don't even think you should be re- reading it at all. You shouldn't even be opening it. But yeah, uh, if you're, I mean, if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna actually read it, then don't you know? Then don't yeah. bother. Um, because uh, you know. Anyway, yeah. uh, you said DC their marketing department. They don't, they don't. DC Comics doesn't have a marketing department anymore. Yeah. So yeah, they're they're, they're literally. I'm not kidding. They, there literally is no marketing department. There's like yeah. a couple of press contacts, and that's it. They they don't. I haven't seen them spend money on you know marketing in, in a long, long time. Uh, um, they don't have a marketing department. They use Warner's marketing department, and yeah, it, it yeah, this, it's a it's a, in that terms, it yeah, it's a failure. So you say fifteen issues? No, man, not fifteen issues. How many different Future State limited series did we have that were set in Gotham City? You know, you said this has Batman in the title. It technically doesn't. Future State Gotham, right? So we had Dark That's Detective, yes, and we had and we had. Um, was it Batman? And then we had Catwoman. Yeah, and we had a Robin, and yeah, that's there was right. another one. So yeah. I, I mean, how, it's way more than fifteen issues. Mm. Uh, way more than fifteen issues. Yeah, um, and and yeah, to your point, like when is this going to end? I you can't you can't think anything but that. Yeah, this is an alter. This is another part of the multiverse mm. where if the if the events of Fear State hadn't happened. This is what the future of Gotham would have looked like. Is is apparently somebody over at DC thinks that that is an important enough what if timeline to continue to to create this book. So yeah, uh, yeah, I can't speak to sales or or not. I haven't looked at any sales numbers in a long time. So yeah, anyway, you let's do move that. On. You'll, you'll just get me. depressed. Right? You'll just get depressed if you yeah. look at this. <laughs> I, I don't think the sales are as bad as people tend to think they are, but I mean, again, I, I don't know. Again, I haven't looked yeah. at them, so I can't, I can't speak to that. So I, what I do know is, you know, overall, if you look at the whole market, numbers are up across the board. They've been growing yeah. for the last three or four years. So yeah, American uh, anyway, books are up uh, 25% overall. Uh, I just wish a higher percentage of that 25% in sales was, was more attributable to DC. So, but uh, yeah, but again, like we don't have hard numbers anymore since they left Diamond. So I take all any numbers, any any numbers are in my mind. There's not really, yeah. There's no hard numbers. There's no say, saying okay, this is actually how many units were sold. Yeah, that's we don't true. Actually, have that. We have you know comparisons. You know, well, we always had and, extrapolation of data, which which we had before. Yeah. We have less of it now, right. but we still we still have rankings, and even amongst the yeah. rankings, yeah, the rankings that, have never been that slow. Yeah, again, again, r- but rankings, they're they're not one hundred percent subjective, but there's a lot more interpretation that has to go into it, 
And it's like, okay, is this a ranking based on percentage? Is, a, is it a ranking based on units? Like without that hard number, it's really hard to say. What I do, what I, what I will say, I, I wasn't going to talk about this, but what I will say in terms of numbers is I know there's a threshold that if books don't meet, they have like a three-month window. And if they, if they don't meet, you know, they'll, they'll put them on whatever. It's called a watch list. And if the, the book – you know, it, it reaches a certain threshold. Okay, we think this book is in danger. It's not making enough money. Let's put it on the watch list and they'll give it like some certain percentage to say, okay, if, if it continues to fall and it falls below this number, then we're just going to cancel it. And we've seen a number of books be canceled in yeah. the last few months. Um, Future State Gotham's not among them. So again, Aquaman was among them. So they are they are canceling books that are not doing well, so yeah. I don't know. You know, again, and those, from my understanding, those are hard numbers, not percentage. So, yeah. again, yeah. Who, who who can say? The only ones that really know are the people that are inside DC executives. So, uh, anyway, moving on. Naomi number five. This is yeah. season two, written by Brian Michael Bendis and David F. Walker. Jamal Campbell is the artist. Wes Abbott on letters. Jillian Grant, oh, assistant editor. Where's uh, – oh, that's right. Um, Jamal Campbell. Sorry, I wasn't thinking about it. Jamal Campbell does his own colors. So I'll, I'll digitally paint it here. Uh, yeah, what would you think? Uh, this is my favorite issue of Naomi so far. My favorite issue of Naomi from from the first volume as well. So so we've had six issues in the first volume. We're now five issues into volume two of two of Naomi. And uh, this is my favorite out of all those 11 issues. I, I love I really enjoyed the action in this issue. I thought, uh, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of your comments that, uh, you know, Bendis is who he is. So that, there's still some habits there that, uh, you know, aren't, aren't my preference. Uh, but I will say that I really I love the art here. And I, I thought that the. Uh, I thought some of the uh, the dialogue w- was better than in the, in the past. I this is Naomi Bimmy basically confronting Zimbato. Zimbato from her home world has finally arrived, along with Zimbato's sort of version of his Justice League. He doesn't have a name for it. He arrives with uh, Brutus, Jupiter, and Kilgore, uh, and two other members of Zimbardo's team, which are unnamed. I couldn't find names for him, but we've met uh, Brutus and I believe uh, Jupiter and Kilgore in the Justice League run with when uh, during when Naomi, Naomi was with the Justice League and they, and they visited uh, the world uh, Zimbardo. Naomi's homeworld they did battle there and one of the things that's mentioned here is that Zumbato was 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 upset with that uh so he's he's come to this world to essentially uh, take out take out Naomi and essentially take over this world we in the the way that Bendis has scripted this this particular issue I, he does, he, so, he sort of, he does some time, time jumps where he, he shows Naomi having past conversations with, with, uh, Cyborg and, and, uh, Hawkgirl, as well as Superman and as well as with Dr. Fate, where she discusses her powers. One of the, one of the criticisms that uh, was levied against Bendis in the first series and even leading up to this one, including in the pages of Justice League is that we, we never really had an idea what, 
Naomi's skill set, what her power set, what, what, what is it? What are its foundations? What, what is the, the details? You know, we knew that it was, it had, it was energy based, but we had, there were some open questions. And, and here we find out some interesting things that I, I thought uh, artist uh, Jamal C- Campbell really shows to great effect, in particular, something called the double punch. Naomi is capable of seeing energy, drawing it into her and reflecting it back, adding extra and extra, doubling her own powers and punch. So, so when you, when you if you're an energy-based opponent and you're fighting Naomi, you're probably going to get have your work cut out for you because she can use your own energy against you like she does here against the forces of Zimbardo. And uh, she does seem to have potentially some sort of vision power. She can sort of like have, it's, it's unclear exactly what that is. She can kind of like see, I don't know if she can see into her home world or what exactly, but we know she's talked to Dr. Fate, Constantine, and Zatanna. And uh, she, she, it also, so Bendis has a good job showing she's gotten guidance from the other members of the Justice League. If you're someone that's into Naomi, but you haven't followed her adventures with the Justice League, that's okay because Bendis does a good job here of just giving you the bullet points of showing you got Naomi Volume 1. If you're just reading Volume 2 from Volume 1, you know that Naomi's gotten some guidance from members of the Justice League and she's starting to develop her powers and have an appreciation of her powers. And there's a really great scene here. I love this whole, whole, I thought this entire issue was, for me, it was the most satisfying of the one I've read so far because I like Naomi battling Zimbardo and actually holding her own. And because it's it's about time. We, we, we who have been following her adventures, it feels much, it's only been maybe two or three weeks for Naomi, it seems, but for for us, it's been like it's been like a year and a half or longer. I, I'm glad to see her stand up on her own and, and hold her own against some butt and and really kick some butt here. And I'm really looking forward to the the sixth and final issue of this particular volume. And again, I won't say that we've gotten a lot of story, but. Uh, what we are getting is a this is a very slow burn. But I think that, you know, looking back when you hit volume three, volume four into the future, I think that all all the volumes together are going to read quite, quite well together. And Jamal Campbell's absolutely fantastic. You uh, it's it's really well done here. You really, I really got a sense of the raw power of Naomi because of the fantastic art and the coloring and just the shades and the the whole package. This is a beautiful looking comic book, and this was I, I thought one of the better. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed reading this uh, more so than any other issue so far, and it just goes to show you that uh, my bias is, is when Bendis is here where there's no dialogue, where Bendis just lets he just lets Jamal Campbell's art speak for itself because you don't need dialogue. And kudos to, to Bendis to, to allow uh, Jamal Campbell to show off his artistic skill and not covering up his beautiful uh, pencils with, uh, with, with dialogue. And so this is the best of the series so far and hopefully it'll end with a bang as well with one, one, one issue to go in this second volume. <laughs> I hated it, man. Uh, well, that's, that's, too, that's too strong of a word, but... Uh, this your this is your favorite issue of of both the volumes so far. This was my least favorite issue of both volumes so far. I'm a huge yeah. Jamal Campbell fan. I, I love Jamal's art. I, I thought the art and the action here was very hard to follow. Um, I mean, the line work is you know it's it's J- Jamal Campbell. The style is Jamal Campbell, but uh, his storytelling here. I, I mean, time and time again, I was trying to flip back and forth to previous panels to try to understand what was going on. Like I, I was, I felt lost visually, uh, repeatedly. So yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really care for it. And part of me wonder, 
if it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, if it's not because he chose to put this whole battle uh, in rain, it's raining the whole time. So we have this rain that's um, that's going on throughout the the fight, and I don't know, maybe it, maybe that's what was distracting for me, but I, I didn't think the art was up to its usual standards. And the other thing is, when did Naomi get these giant, giant eyebrows? Every time they were, her eyebrows were on the page. It was or in the panel. It was distracting me. Uh, apparently, she got them in continuity from her father because her father has the same giant eyebrows. Um, <laughs> but my problem is that previously they never had these giant eyebrows. They just had normal eyebrows that I never really noticed one way or the other. So if they were these giant thick eyebrows like this, I certainly would have noticed previously. Um, and Superman, he's got some pretty big eyebrows on the cover, but they, they, they still pale in comparison to the size of the eyebrows that Na Naomi has inside the issue. So I, I, I don't know what the heck was going, up, going on with her eyebrows. I will say that it made her look a lot older um, and in a way more formidable. So maybe that's why Jamal Campbell did it. Or maybe it's just a manifestation of her powers. The more she uses her powers, the bigger her eyebrows get. I, I don't know. Um, but it was extremely distracting. So <laughs> there's that with, with, with the art, you know, like, and no matter what happened throughout the series, I always counted on the Jamal Campbell art to, to really be amazing and for me to love it. And I just didn't hear. But again, I think a lot of that had to do with the choice to, to put the, you know, the constant rain throughout, which I just didn't like because when I'm flipping through it now and I'm looking at my favorite pages, um, like I, I don't, I don't mind the pages where she's talking to Zatanna or Constantine or where she's talking to Superman on top of the hall of justice, but the, the battle scenes, the way, and normally I'm all for dynamic panel layouts, but again, I just found it extremely hard to follow as far as the story. So I was a hundred percent wrong. Um, and you were right when we talked previously, about the timeline and, and, you know, when this is occurring. My contention was, well, I think this is occurring pretty quickly after the volume one was over and she hasn't joined the Justice League and traveled to her uh, planet where her parents were from, where she's originally from yet, because that's that made more sense based on where we were in the story and the way she was acting. Based on this story, 100%, there's like, ah, oh, you came, uh, Zimbato says, hey, you came to my world with a league. So clearly she's been there. She this <laughs> this series is taking place after Bendis's run on Justice League and everything that happened. That that to me, like everything that I was giving Bendis and David Walker the benefit of the doubt about, like why isn't Naomi a little further along in, in the use of her powers and her maturity and, and you know where she is? I was why is there's all this conflict with her parents? And I was all pointing. This is still real new to them. This is still real new. Uh, no, it's not. It's not new. So all those criticisms that you had uh, were uh, early on that I was kind of pushing back on saying, no, she hasn't had a chance to learn that stuff yet. It turns out you were 100% right and I was wrong. All those criticisms you had were, were valid. Now, that being said, does she seem to take a step forward in characterization and maturity in this issue? 100% she does. So it's a positive in that way, but a negative in that we got confirmation that the timeline is really wonky. So um, I... I and it's hard to, you know, I don't want to put blame on anybody. I know Bendis is busy with a lot of projects. I know David Walker's busy. Um, but it's it's problematic when we get, you know, six issues of a character 
not really developed and, you know, a new character. We get six issues. They come out in relatively, I think, I don't think there was any delays. I think they came out in six consecutive months or at least within eight months, we got the first. And then we don't get anything for almost two years, except she shows up in Justice League a little bit, but obviously Justice League, a team book, you can't focus just on her. Um, not much character development. And then, you know, two years later, we have this. So again, you know, re- whatever the reason, it's kind of tough to develop a character when she's not getting any screen time. So, and, and as much as I really appreciate the Jamal Campbell art, this issue notwithstanding with the battle scenes, um, his art does lend itself to these big kind of cinematic panels. And when you do that, you get even less story, right? Because you're, you're showcasing the art, which is great to your point. It's positive. It's this art is beautiful. It carries the story, but you have less room to tell the story or you got to put in a thousand word balloons like we've seen Bendis do before. So there are some, there are some issues here. You know, it's almost like, okay, if Bendis doesn't have time to write a, a monthly Naomi book, then bring in somebody who can, because it's a character that has a lot of potential. I feel like the potential is being squandered. We've said this before. It hasn't completely been wasted yet, but poor Naomi has taken some hits, you know, based on these editorial decisions, based on the fact that her TV show got canceled. I mean, her TV show gets canceled. You're, you're really reducing the number of people that are going to be exposed to her going forward. So yeah. if you want her to, you know, maintain relevance, you want to develop her. I mean, she is a young African American hero in DC. If you're about representation, you should be trying to put your best foot forward with Naomi. And I don't know if the decisions, and again, I'm not placing blame, just saying these are the realities. If Bendis is too busy, if David Walker is too busy, if Jamal Campbell's too slow, um, you know, you got to do, you got to do something else. You know, you got to do something else. Give her a digital, give her a digital first series, at least with a different creative team, you know, that lasts whatever, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, just to get her out there, get some exposure, get some character development. Well, yeah, and you have a you have a DC Direct website, and why not put a web web only thing on DC Direct? Uh, all the subscribers for that could, could could get it for free, and really, you know, really really yeah, develop web, the character. Webtoons, for they're sure. Doing the, yeah, they're doing the uh, Wayne family or whatever on webtoons. Yeah. You could put it on there. I like Naomi; she has a lot of potential. I I don't want to see it squandered. So yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batgirls number eight. This is written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. Robbie Rodriguez on art, Rico Renzi on colors, Becca Carey on letters. <clears throat> so this was the book I think when I started reading it, I was like, "Why am I? Why do I still read this? I should stop <laughs> reading this. It's not for me. Uh, stop taking <clears throat> the time, wasting the time talking about it when I only ever have negative things to say." Uh, that being said, I did I did like this issue. I thought it was a good wrap up of this uh, bad reputation <clears throat> storyline, part two of two. Uh, of course, the cliche thing, Seer gets away, and um, I, at least Barbara Gordon got to destroy all her equipment and destroy her computer. So, um, but that's not going to stop somebody of Seer's intelligence level. She'll rebuild. She'll be back to, to bother uh, Batgirl and or Oracle and the Batgirls again. Uh, the I guess the other cliche thing they could have done was invite her to join the Batgirls. Um, could have gone either way, but they chose, yeah, let's, let's have her, um, escape and whatever. And, and I, it was really problematic the way that she escaped, right? Here, here's Batgirl who earlier in the issue shows how formidable she is. 
when she's fighting against uh, the Saint gang and, and whatever, right? And then, you know, again, super physically talented, you know, master level fighter, trained by the best, blah, blah, blah. How does Seer escape? Oh, she pushes Batgirl and Batgirl falls down this hole into the sewer. I was like, if, if you're Batgirl and you're one of the, you know, top fighters, granted you're not Cassandra Kane level, but you're up there, you're great. You know, you can stand toe to toe with Nightwing. You're telling me this little 12 year old girl could just turn around and push you and you can't stop yourself from falling backward. Like you can allow her to push you. First of all, you can't block it or stop it or sidestep it, but <laughs> she can push you with enough force that you then fall down into a sewer. Like I was like, really? Cause reasons. <laughs> yeah. I, it was the dumbest. It was the dumbest thing. I thought it was really poorly done. Like you want her to escape fine, whatever you could do it in a better way that doesn't like it just, it stretches the believability beyond any reason. Um, so that, that was, that, that, that really was a problem for me. Uh, but other than that, I thought it wrapped everything else, uh, up pretty well, even if it was sort of cliched, I did, although I'm not a big Robbie Rodriguez fan by any stretch, what I do appreciate about Robbie Rodriguez uh, art style is at least it feels, I feel like it suits the tone of the book better. Like the reason that I think I like this issue more than previous issues with Jorge Corona, through, through no fault of his own, it's just his particular style, Jorge Corona's art to me just feels juvenile. It feels like it belongs in a book where you know, it's for younger readers and it's playful and it's just, and he can put all the ink spatter he wants on his, over his line work. It doesn't change the fact that it makes it look like a kid's book, it makes it look like a book that's, that's for kids. Now with Robbie Rodriguez, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of his style, but at least it feels mature. At least it feels like, I, I feel like I take it serious, you know, and I try to take Jorge Corona's artwork seriously. I just can't, I just can't. It's just too cartoony. You know, like whenever we see uh, the car that exploded Bondo, whenever it's driving down the street, it's like <laughs> yeah. 20 feet up in the air because it's, you know, it's just cartoony. Um, and I just don't think it suits the style and the tone of the, the story they're trying to tell. So as much as I'm not a fan of Robbie Rodriguez um, style, I mean, he's a fine storyteller. I think the storytelling flows really well. Transitions from panel to panel are fine. I never had to stop and go back. I was never confused. Um, I just don't care for his particular aesthetic, um, but at least it's an aesthetic that feels like it belongs in an adult superhero book, you know, because um, this book is not for kids. It, it is a very mature book. So, um, yeah, other than than Seer somehow pushing Batgirl down a sewer, which was just ridiculous. I thought it was I thought it was solid. I guess we'll see um, see what, where it goes going forward. Next, the next arc will decide because I will take my own advice. And if I, I only have negative things to say about this going forward, I'm going to stop. I'll stop reading it for the spotlight. So anyway, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, uh, I could uh, I'm going to focus on the most positive thing I get out of this comic because I just sort of shook my head in frustration two and two on multiple levels. But I actually enjoyed my favorite new character in this is Lulu LaRue. She is a sword swallower. Look at the mouth uh, on this I woman. I think I blocked that out. Her opening her mouth like a giant snake yeah. to pull swords out. Four swords. Really... She can swallow four swords. Four. It Flaming swords dumb, dumb. on fire. That's huge. Dumb. 
That's incredible. Um, and of course, she spends half the issue running, you know, because uh, the last issue, issue ended with you know, Barbara Gordon and, and uh, Nightwing infiltrating the Iceberg Lounge. And uh, ultimately, they need to rescue the seer. That's the basement of the Iceberg Lounge is where the saints have the seer uh, sort of uh, in their sort of kidnapped and in their custody. And the big fight scene, of course, is between Nightwing and Valentine, this character Valentine, who Nightwing defeats and uh, Valentine insults Barbara Gordon. Nightwing handily dispatches. Uh, Barbara Gordon, you know, uh, uh, takes out uh, members of the Saints to rescue the seer as well. And uh, in fact, the best the highlight of this issue is the dialogue, frankly, uh, and I'm, I don't say this a lot, but uh, when I when I talk about uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, I'm not generally huge fans of their dialogue at all, but I actually enjoyed the rapport here between Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson. Uh, rumor has it, has it that uh, the pages of Nightwing were probably headed toward a wedding between Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson. And more of that romance continues to be developed here in this issue. If you are a Barbara Gordon and a Nightwing fan and you, you haven't been buying Batgirls, you know what? Just buy this issue. You don't need to know the backstory. And it's, it's just this is a fun issue. There's even humor in it. I love the romantic banter back and forth between Nightwing and Barbara Gordon. I thought it worked, worked very well. There's even at the very end that I think will please a lot of uh, Nightwing uh, Barbara Gordon shippers where uh, Barbara Gordon is having a conversation with Stephanie Brown <laughs> and uh, Cassandra Kane, And of course, she's wearing She's wearing Dick Grayson's underwear. And, of course, it's uh, Robin underwear and, the, and the, the green shorts. And I thought that was very well done. And uh, Robbie Rodriguez, I think, had fun with that drawing, illustrating that. And I thought it worked. And it's those types of fun moments that I enjoyed, enjoyed the most in this particular issue. Uh, now, the other things I could be critical of, you've already alluded to them already, and that is that uh, when we're talking about Seer, this is a child that's psychopathic, really, who's murdered, who's, uh, you know, Barbara Gordon. They, they seem to think that the threat is over, that, oh, oh, this this crazy psychotic child killer who's genocidal and who's murdered thousands of lives during fear state. Uh, oh, she's not a threat anymore because she escaped. We caught her computer. She doesn't have she doesn't have her computer anymore. So she's not a threat. Like, really? <laughs> Come on. I, I, it was a little bit silly uh, the way it sort of wrapped up. Uh, I mean, she clearly should have been apprehended. But I mean, again, nitpick, whatever. Uh, I, I get it. But uh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to say one criticism finally, and I'm going to reiterate it when we review Wonder Woman 789, also written by Becky Cloonan and Michael, Michael W. Conrad. Is that Wonder Woman, I would argue, just like Batgirls, is a almost odd and sometimes disturbing, eclectic combination of almost childlike parody and themes with adult themes, and it, it and it's it's just it feels odd, it feels off, and I'll just leave it at that. But uh, in any event, the Barbara Barbara Gordon and uh, Dick Grayson scenes here saved it for me. Uh, and I apologize for my voice uh, if it's I'm trying to eliminate some of the echoes here, but or. Uh, yeah, but, a little uh, little staticky. Not sure what's going on there, but yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Wonder Woman Evolution is up next, part eight, written by writer Stephanie Phillips, Mike Hawthorne on pencils, Adriano D. Benedetto on inks, Jordi Belair on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, what'd you think of this one? I uh, uh, sorry, I'm just just coming up here. Uh, uh, well, this finally, this ends this series, Wonder Woman Evolution. 
I, I have to say that uh, it ends, this ends on a, a low note uh, for me. I, I was disappointed in this series overall, uh, I have to say. I'm not, uh, now, I, I think maybe the, the, the strength of this, this series, uh, I think Stephanie Phillips, if I didn't know better, I would think that she's going to be the new writer on Wonder Woman at some point, because this ends just sort of establishing the fact that Wonder Woman ends up with nanites in her blood, uh, and uh, the what I hoped was going to be the, the theme of this series was just misdirection on the part of Stephanie Phillips. Wonder Woman was never in a position to judge humanity by cosmic gods. That wasn't it at all. It was, she was sort of held captive and fed nanites, fed nanites in her system, uh, which base which this, this Atticus villain was uh, essentially trying to uh, read her DNA in order to create a better human. And that humanity needs to get better and evolve into something better. And so he was utilizing Wonder Woman for that purpose. Um, the reason the reason he gives why he went after Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman Woman's blood uh, as a Batman and Superman. Superman was Kryptonian and he wasn't human. And Batman apparently is just Batman. But Wonder Woman, he doesn't come right out and say this, but Wonder Woman is, is both human and Wonder Woman is also the son of a god. She's a she's a she's a demigod. So so getting the DNA of Wonder Woman is probably a good idea. And uh, so he was hoping to get something out of that. This ends here. Uh, one of the other things that's a lot of confusing on being, you know, being constructively critical. Uh, Silver, uh, the Silver Swan here already has nanites in her blood. That's part of her origin. So this Atticus putting more nanites in Silver Swan's blood only to have Wonder Woman make a deal with Atticus saying, take the nanites out of Silver Swan and give them to me in order to save Silver Swan. And then Silver Swan still has powers and still, has, still has, is, is still Silver Swan. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. I think I, I, I'm, I'm a little confused in that regard. I, um, it, it seems, uh, it, it just seems very, uh, this was, this, this was just, disappointing to me I, I i was hoping for a bigger finish on this um the um my, my disappointment was uh you know sort of sort of enhanced by uh, i thought i thought the art was i don't think the art is the greatest i one thing about stephanie phillips i she's not you know she's dc I think that her independent work like particularly grim which i've read i've been really enjoying in her man among ye um I think her Harley Quinn has, you know, it's it's been okay, but I, I she for whatever reason DC doesn't want to give her a a top a sort of a top name traditional comic book artist, and uh, I think she she deserves that. I, I think I think that uh, makes this story better served with some different kinds of visual vi visuals. But there are some people that disagree with me on that. Maybe you do as well. Um, I, I thought I didn't really like the designs, the, the the artistic choices made in the design of Silver Swan here. I think this is the worst that Silver Swan has ever looked. Her last iteration in her own comic book under James Robinson looked amazing. This was very different than that. Just a lot of these things are subjective, so people can certainly disagree with me on that. So, but I I just I just didn't really like the designs artistically, and the story I was hoping for a little bit more. Stephanie Phillips showed. You know the themes in here. I thought were on the touch of greatness. I, I love the some of the some of the battles in those early battles she had, which were all taking place in Wonder Woman's head. I wish they weren't all imaginary. They ended up being sort of superfluous backstory, just filler, and they didn't really feed the main narrative 
to my satisfaction. Um, but I, I like the fact that, you know, this new Atticus villain, I think he's a little bit, a little bit, you know, he's just another, he's just another guy that wants to have, to create a new type of human beings. And he's got these nanites that are going to do it. And he escapes at the end. And Wonder Woman, it ends with Wonder Woman sort of looking out, uh, outside the Fortress of Solitude as she's meditating and she can feel the nanites go through her bloodstream. So clearly I would think that this is going to be a storyline that's going to be built upon by at some point by Stephanie, Stephanie Phillips herself. So this, in my view, and maybe you can tell me if, if you think I'm just uh, imagining or being, uh, being too uh, uh, speculative that I, 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 I think that this might be something that future writers might pick up on. It might be Stephanie Phillips herself. I, I think this might be a hint. She's going to be writing a wonder woman uh, main line, but uh, what do you think? Yeah, I was I was disappointed too, but not for the same reasons as you. Um, I was disappointed that we didn't get an end to the story. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe I, I'm disappointed that it's coming to an end. Because, uh, yeah, I, I sort of agree with you. It did feel a little bit like bait and switch with this idea of her under a trial, uh, you know, fighting for humanity with this trial under cosmic gods or what have you. And and for the first three or four issues, it seemed that that was the storyline, and then it all got flipped on its head. But if this is how this issue or the series is going to end on issue eight, on a cliffhanger like this with everything, as far as the nanites go, completely unresolved, then yeah, it, it, like I want the rest of the story. Like it feels like this is a cool idea. Wonder Woman's been infected with these nanites, and and to be clear, you, you had said that Atticus was looking to infect her. He never was looking to infect Wonder Woman. So it seems, right? He was always yeah. looking to harvest her DNA to create nanites that would then, you know, replicate Wonder Woman's DNA in, in the hosts. Um, right. But based on what happens when Wonder Woman takes Silver Swan back and confronts Atticus, he's ready. Oh, well, you can take the nanites. Was that his plan all along to end, to end up taking nanites that ha supposedly have Wonder Woman's DNA? Could they somehow control Wonder Woman at some point? Like it, it's not, it's not clear. Like it, there seem to be hints of that. So I feel like the story, the most interesting parts of the story, are just getting started, and this is the final issue. So that's the case. I kind of wish that the this idea of a trial under cosmic gods had been truncated, and Stephanie could have shrunk that down into you know one or two issues, three issues at most, and we could have gotten more of this story because this feels more. Um, kind of more super heroic in a way as opposed to the other, which is interesting. And it makes you think, you know, d does humanity deserve to exist? And you know, that's a more philosophical kind of highbrow story. Whereas, you know, this, this issue finished up with this fantastic battle between this <clears throat> silver swan slash wonder woman hybrid and wonder woman herself. So yeah, it definitely feels like there's more to come with this story. And that that's where my disappointment comes from. I don't know where I'm going to get the story or when, um, but what I ended up feeling like <laughs> when I finished reading, I was like, this should have, this should be happening in the regular Wonder Woman title because then it gets to keep going. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Well, like, like say, who knows? Maybe, maybe when Clunrad are done their storyline, maybe we're going to get this continued because it just seems to me, this cries out for some kind of sequel with nanites in her blood. I mean, they got to be doing something in, in Wonder Woman's blood. So there, there's potential here anyway. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, all right. Up next, we have Dark Crisis, Worlds Without a Justice League, Superman number one. <laughs> Quite the mouthful there. There's a main story by Tom King with art by Chris Burnham, colors by Adriana Lucas, and letters by Troy Petrie. And then there's a backup Aquaman story that's written by Brandon Thomas, Fico Osio is the artist. If that name sounds familiar, he's the one that did uh, the Mr. Miracle Source of Freedom series that we loved. Colors are by Sebastian Chang and letters are by Troy Petrie. So I didn't know this was going to be two stories. Neither one of them is full length. It's about 30 pages. So we get two 15 page stories here. Um, and again, I, based on the fact that Dark Crisis hasn't really felt like it's gotten going, um, I don't know exactly what's going on here in terms of where are these stories coming from? Because these feel like complete, you know, what if alternate reality, multiversal yeah. stories where we actually, and I really enjoyed the first story. That being said, I really enjoyed the first story, really enjoyed, enjoyed uh, liked Chris Burnham's cover for it because this is a glimpse of what we lost by having John Kent aged up. And I'm, that's all I'm going to say about that. We have, you know, talked about that ad nauseum and infinitum, however you want to put it. I'm sure people are tired of hearing others, comic book reviewers complain about it. It's the reality. It is what it is. I know there's still a number of people that think it's going to be reversed. I personally don't, uh, not based on the success of, of, um, uh, son of kal Um, but this is exactly what we missed out on the story by Tom King is what we missed out on by not having John age up with Lois and Clark in the main DCU continuity. And uh, this is just a glimpse and it covers a lot of years because obviously Tom King, as I said, only has 15 pages. Um, and John does age up <laughs> almost to that same age he is now actually um, in, in, you know, much less time. But at least we get to see it. At least we get the to know that he's there with his parents. Um, and I just thought, I just thought it was so good. I just loved it. Um, and in a way, it's almost a, it's almost the other side of the coin of what we have currently in DC continuity, where John gets aged up in in a blink, and we don't get to see him. We know that he doesn't spend any of his formative years with his parents, and then. Uh, he's not back for very long before his dad takes off into space to fight some huge menace as opposed to this, where he does, John Kent does get to spend his time, his formative years growing up with his parents. But as soon as he's old enough to make his own call, he goes off into space uh, to fight some giant menace. So I kind of liked the, um, the duality of that. And I'm not the biggest fan of, of Chris Burnham's style. Um, I thought it worked really, really well here. Uh, and I'll talk, I'll, I'll talk about the backup or the, it's not even a backup. You can't even really say it's backup because they're equally, uh, I think they're, well, I guess the first one is, is 20 pages and the second one is not. So yeah, I guess technically it is a backup, but anyway, what'd you think of the, uh, the Superman story, Rocky? Uh, I got, I got seriously mixed feelings about it. Um, because, um, oh man, uh, on the one hand, I can kind of feel where you're coming from that this is, we're sort of getting a snap, a possible snapshot of what it was like, what it could have been like if John Kent had not spent his formative years in a volcano being traumatized by Ultraman. Uh, and in, 
now, but having said that, one thing that Tom, uh, the writer uh, Tom King, focuses on is that, and it should be mentioned that each chapters in these 20 pages, what Tom King does a good job, job of is that he makes, he very conservatively and effectively utilizes various chapters based on the age of John Kent. One when John Kent is age 13, 14, 15, all the way up when he's 18 years of age. And right away from when John is very young at 13 years of age, where he's dressing up as his best friend Damien as Robin, <laughs> to when he's helping his dad fight Brainiac. And a couple of things are very, very interesting here that one could, could take issue. And I, I can already hear twi Twitter's, Twitter now, comic book Twitter, going maybe a little bit crazy over this issue. I'm going to be very curious to, to see what uh, other reviewers have to say about this, because I find it interesting that this is... I. I like, I find it kind of cool that Tom King has a young John Kent actually hear the cries of screaming and dying people on other planets being killed in wars. He he hears Darkseid's forces led by Orion, which doesn't make any sense because Orion is the son of Darkseid, but Orion is, Orion's a good guy, but Orion is portrayed like a villain here who is on yeah, but keep in mind, keep in mind alternate, this is clearly not the main DCU, so alter, well, know, alternate... Multiverse. Well, yes. Uh, well, yes and no. My my ba my my pushback to that is this is supposed to be a world. This is supposed to be a world that where where if Superman's dreams came true. So Superman, what Superman's deprived of, and even Aquaman in the backup future. What happens? It's almost like wait, they're wait, the best where, futures. Where, did you get, where are you getting that this is a world where Superman's dreams can come true? I get that. That's the Aqua. That's the point of the Aquaman story. But I didn't get that. I mean, this is a world without a Justice League. So uh, well, f first of all, uh, uh, well, okay, well, then, then let's back up. This is terribly named. This is not a world without the, the Justice League. This world has men in it, and there's no evidence that there's no Justice League in it. So that doesn't make any sense. There's no evidence it, that there is. There's no evidence well, that there is a Justice League, or there isn't a Justice League. There's no. Well, that's evidence. my point. You but said, but, but that's dressing, kind of my point. Up, yeah, and, you said dressing up as your your his best friend Damien. He's got a Robin. It's a very the costume is very reminiscent of Robin, except it's blue instead of being green. Well, no, obviously, my, but we don't even know if there's a Batman or Robin in this reality. Well, fair enough, uh, but we also, uh, but we, we all, I guess, it just seems to me that if he's dressing up like it, it just seems off. Like it's it's not entirely clear to me based on the title. Should we presuppose that? I suppose we're supposed to, but. My, my, my point being is just getting getting back on track is this this is uh, at the end of this Superman says something he says Lois says to him uh, Superman says on, on on the last page I love um, oh, where is it he says I was there Lois I was here I saw him I got to see him grow into the man he had to be I didn't miss it this time. No, no, not for, not this time, not for anything. I wouldn't trade this for anything. So clearly, there at the end, Superman seems to be having some self awareness that he he got to see his son grow up, almost as if he 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 knows he has some self awareness that he he's witnessing something something that he never got to witness before, and so there's that, and, th and that's very helpful. It's also a little bit out of the blue, uh, but so that's what I find intriguing about it. So clearly Superman is, why is Superman having this vision? It, it's about something that he deeply desires. Clearly he wanted it. He, you know that, I, that that's actually one of the things I like about it, Jace. I like the fact that this is Superman. I, I, I appreciate those last two panels where, where Clark is saying to, to Lois, 
I got to see it. I got to see him grow up because yeah, finally, I noticed it. Yeah, right. I noticed that line. I didn't miss it this time. That stood out to me as well. But yeah, we, I, I, we, like you said, we don't have any context for where this story is supposed to fit in. It goes back to my what first thing I said. How does this fit into Dark Crisis? What like Dark Crisis hasn't even get, gotten started yet. Well, I, but, I can. But, s- I mean, even even if this is, I mean, I still would not say okay. This is the the world that Superman would want. Like it's some sort of whatever happened in the Man of Tomorrow story, because Superman would never want. It's and it happens multiple times in the story where they refer to the fact that Earth is the only like location in the galaxy that hasn't been conquered by Darkseid. Like the gal, he Superman himself said he says those words. The galaxy belongs to Darkseid. That's why he doesn't want John going off Earth. So I mean, this isn't some okay. This is what Superman would always dream of and want. He would never want all of the galaxy to be con- conquered by Darkseid. All of the universe to be conquered by Darkseid, except for Earth. Well, I. I- no. Yeah, I get that. I, I, look, I, I can speculate. My speculation is that Pariah, that Pariah has his dream world. Pariah wants to recreate the infinite Earths and his own home world that was destroyed in the original Crisis on Infinite Earths. And so this was Pariah has his original world that he wants. And this is maybe some version of a level world where Superman, uh, some version of Superman can live shielded from Darkseid. I, I don't know. I'm speculating. And then Aquaman has it. And then maybe other m- members of the Justice League have it pres- because they happen to die at the hands of Pariah. And because Pariah is getting his wish, maybe some of that is imbuing off that energy, that wish fulfilling energy is maybe imbuing off on the Justice League. I, again, I'm I'm just speculating, but... Uh, like I said, I got mixed feelings about about this. It's kind of cool. I, uh, what I find interesting is John Kent is 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 obsessed with helping other people on other planets in this war that Darkseid is in the, for the rest of the universe. And as John Kent is getting older, unlike his dad, unlike Kal El, unlike uh, Clark, he, he's a, he's fifteen years old when he first flies off to fight a war against Darkseid. And the big victory for John is finally, finally when he's it's when he's teen that he returns home or 17, he returns back and he he's so happy that he finally defeated Orion. He finally defeated Orion. And that was when he was 17 years of age. So and it, it what I like about it is that this reinforces the fact that John Kent is different than his father. And Lois even says that to Clark saying, Clark, he's different. He's not you. He has his own way of doing things. It's sort of like reinforcing the fact that this is more socially active, more socially conscious John Kent. Cal, you know, Clark didn't want John to go off and fight other people's wars, other people's battles. You got to let them fight them. uh, Whereas John is not afraid to interfere with political affairs. He's not afraid to interfere in the sovereignty of nations. He's not afraid to interfere with other planets. Superman is less reluctant to do that and uh, or or more reluctant to do that. And so I I kind of like that aspect of when King is sort of he's picking up on what Tom Taylor. This is consistent with Tom Taylor's more socially active, proactive John Kent. And I like that that is sort of being addressed here a little bit now whether or not people like that i don't know but i I agree with you that it's it's enticing to me it's enticing and it's it's interesting i do think it's a little heavy-handed i do think that i i do think that this obsession that john kent has with flying off to fight wars when he's as young as four you know as young as 14 15 and he's flying off i mean i don't know if that's a healthy thing for a young kid to do, but this is the son of Superman. So it is what it is. So I don't know. Uh, I, I, 
I'm intrigued by this. And be, and I, I'm not sure. I find Tom King to be an interesting writer for this, but maybe the appropriate one because there's a requisite amount, amount of emotion in this. I'm curious to see how other people are going to react to this. And I look people I look forward to people making comments uh, because this isn't this isn't Tom King. I don't think he's necessarily destroying a character here or making anyone bad because Tom King has a reputation. You and I are general defenders of Tom King. We've enjoyed his work. I I think that uh, I thought this was very, very interesting. And but like you said, because we don't know all the background as to what's leading up to up to this. Maybe we, I have to withhold judgment as to where this is actually kind of going because Tom King generally doesn't play well with others in terms of continuity. And this is related to Dark Crisis, apparently. But for the life of me, like you, I'm not entirely clear as to how that will link up. But like I said, I, it's the art by Chris Burnham here, I think, is excellent. I really like how it w works out. I like uh, when he's 16, he gets this power super space bike. I think that was pretty cool. Tom King hits, hits all the milestones here. Burnham does a great job illustrating it. His his use of emotion on facial expressions from Lois Lane yelling at Clark for not, uh, young John Kent for not finding his Robin outfit in the early issues to, to, to Clark being more emotional near the end as his son flies off into space as an adult. Uh, it's, um, like I say, it's intriguing. Uh, I just wish I kind of knew exactly where this is headed. But uh, uh, I look forward to your comments about Aquaman. What do you think about that? Yeah, one last thing about the Superman story. I, I mean, you could be right if if we look at it, if it's Pariah that's manipulating and, and this is, okay, what's your, you know, reach inside Clark's mind and say what what's your biggest wish or your biggest regret or the one thing you wish you could change and then give him that. The one thing that he, he wants was to see his son grow up. But you give him that, but then you ruin everything else about that reality. So you you let him have his get to spend time watching his son grow up by making Earth the safe haven, whereas all the rest of the reality universe, galaxy, whatever's all conquered by Darkseid and everything else is screwed. Mm. Maybe you know if I if I wanted to speculate, uh, yeah the the Aquaman story. I mean, it's very similar. It's it's very similar in a lot of ways. Um, although it, it's not my it's not my favorite, but it does seem to be the way that DC is taking all their heroes now. Uh, you know, Superman has a son. Obviously, he always had Supergirl. And, you know, you could talk about the bigger family with um, with Connor and Crypto and, and whatnot. And we know, we all know Batman family's huge at this point. And Aquaman seems to be going that way as well. We have Mira, then we have Jackson Hyde. Now they have a baby. There's Andy. And so, yeah, everything is a family now. Um, and in a way, I'm not a fan of it because I do like... Uh, writers to be able to tell simpler stories and as a, a reader you know i could just i'm just reading about aquaman i want to pick up an aquaman title and just read about aquaman and not have to have space in the book for all these other supporting characters um so i don't i don't know if it's working for me completely that being said um i did enjoy this you know glimpse into the future where Aquaman's parents are both still alive and they're renewing their vows and everybody is, you know, all those people I mentioned are there, um, including Black Manta, who, you know, kind of on the heels of Aquaman is is now no longer a villain. Um, and man, I really hope that doesn't like I, Black Manta was always one of my favorite villains because he was unrepentantly who he was. Um, but it's almost like now that we have Jackson Hyde as a hero 
and that relationship. And it seems like Black Manta may want to, you know, fix that fractured relationship. He's he, the only first thing he's going to have to do to fix it is, you know, stop killing people, stop being a pirate, stop trying to kill Aquaman. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I thought this was OK. Um, you know, it was an interesting glimpse. Again, no context for it. Uh, the title's interesting. Aquaman has everything. And I love the art. Uh, Fico Osio, I, I think his art style is, is fantastic. So, yeah, um, uh, but it's clear that, it, you know, clear that this is a dream because he Aquaman does wake up at the end and says, I don't have everything yet. I don't yet have my hands around your throat. You think you've beaten us, but better than you have tried. I've been dead before I've come back. So who's he talking to? He's talking to great darkness. Like, I don't know. Guess we'll see. What'd you think? Uh, yeah, well, I, I share your sentiment. Uh, it's it's um, it, it's it's Aquaman getting everything on the surface. Aquaman gets everything he ever wanted. Uh, ultimately, this this involves a a party centered around the wedding of Andy, his young, his daughter Andy, and her, her non binary. No, it's, it's not it's not Andy's wedding. It's uh, the re- Aquaman's parents are renewing their vows, and Andy's like introducing just chambers to her family for the first time and singing oh, okay. at their singing at the the ceremony yeah okay yeah fair enough yeah uh yeah i guess i i sort of misunderstood that because uh yeah because uh jesse goes around and she defeats uh charlatan the villain of yeah. of uh, of Andy, I guess, who has uh planted bombs around the, the thing and it's one sort of great big love fest Everybody's guys yeah. getting wrong, and uh, like and like you said, the most telling thing is, I mean, Black Manta with his arm around Jackson Hyde, his son, and they're laughing. I mean, that's just unheard of. I mean, uh, and the the funny thing is, this is written by Brandon Thomas, which I just chuckled because Brandon between Brandon Thomas and Chuck Brown, I didn't think that Black Manta would ever have a smile on his face. But but here we are. This, so it must be a, a dream sequence. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure they enjoyed being. I'm sure Brandon Thomas enjoyed scripting this because because uh, this is this is the end for all concerned but like you said for such a happy ending it's quite jarring on the bottom half of the last page uh you know with Aquaman clearly being self-aware that this is not real that uh he doesn't have everything yet and that even though he knows he's got everything in this dream sequence he's or whatever he's experiencing he doesn't have everything yet and what he wants is probably to get his hand around the throat he's referring to to get his hand around I'm, I'm assuming it's pariah so pariah I'm guessing that whoever is doing this, presumably it's Pariah or some other member of the Dark uh, Army who's got the ability to manipulate or create dream sequences, which could be could be Eclipso. It could be any member of that Dark Army that has maybe some sort of like telepathic powers. I'm speculating, of course, but um, I'm I'm actually kind of glad as I'm as we're reviewing it here and I'm hearing your thoughts and stating my own. I, I have a better appreciation now. Uh, because it, this is rubbing me better. The raw, the, the it's, it feels better now having reviewed it. I, the whole thing in perspective, I have a better feeling about it because it, it just feels so jarring. And, and I have to say it without having, we, we dive into this issue so cold. This felt so jarring to me. It didn't feel like dark crisis, dark crisis feels, this feels like such a completely different story. Out of, out of in air it doesn't feel connected and it's sort of taken i appreciate this review and this discussion because i it's like now maybe the pieces are more starting to fit and i can maybe see it a little bit better um uh i hope i hope other readers don't have my 
obtuseness in taking this long to maybe put some of the pieces together. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. We do have no, no context. I, 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 you know, it's what I said at the beginning. Dark Crisis feels like it hasn't started, so we don't know where this fits. It might have been better to push this out a little bit until Dark Crisis gets going, or it might have been better to have Dark Crisis have something happen in the first two issues other than a fight between uh, Nightwing and Destro. So yeah. anyway, uh, let's move on. Batman Urban Legends, number 17. Ooh, this book's been out that long. Uh, we've got four stories. They're all standalone. The first one's Batman and the Flash in Cold Shoulders by Ryan Caddy, Gleb Melnikoff on pencils and inks, Scott Hanna also on inks, Luis Guerrero on colors, Troy Petrie does the letters, Batman and Aquaman in The Sea Beyond by writer Joey Esposito, Serge Acuna on art, Alex Guillermas on colors, Pat Broso on letters, Batman and Black Adam in Statecraft. Alex Pacnadel is the writer. Amon K. Noelapon is the artist. Jordi Belair on colors. Ariana Mayer on letters. And finally, Batman, the Riddler, the Penguin, and Catwoman in On His Worst Nights uh, from, writer Dan, from writer Dan Waters. Riley Rosmo is the artist. Trish Mulvihill on colors. And World Design does the letters. Um, I thought the first one felt a little bit like an inventory story. Uh, in that it could fit in anywhere at any point with Batman and the Flash teaming up, uh, Captain Cold and Ra's al Ghul also team up. So it, it definitely felt like a classic story, like something you'd see back in a Brave and the Bold from the late 70s or early 80s. So I appreciated that. Um, the Gleb Melnikov colors I thought worked really well with the uh, or the Gleb Melnikov line work I thought worked really really well with the Luis Guerrero colors. So I enjoyed that one. Um, even though the characterization for Barry Allen felt a little vanilla, uh, he wasn't quite fleshed out. He felt a little two-dimensional, but for the most part, I enjoyed that story. The Batman and Aquaman story, kind of similar in feel in that it felt a little bit like an old-school team-up, Brave and the Bold. But what I didn't like, I didn't like the characterization that Joey Esposito, the writer, gave to Mira. She comes across as like overly harsh and like a B-I-T-C-H. Like very, I won't, we'll go that far, but she, <laughs> she, she was fawning over, you know, like talking to Batman. How dare you talk to Aquaman like that? He's royalty, blah, blah, blah. Like it, it, it didn't fit any characterization of mirror that I've ever seen in recent time. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that that was, was horribly misguided and, uh, he sort of tries to redeem it later on where Aquaman himself says something to Mira about being harsh. And she's like, yeah, maybe I was too harsh on him, but it, it but it didn't work. She should have never been like that in the beginning. It, it comes, it makes Mira actually less. It diminishes Mira. She comes across as being like, um, like just not very intelligent, you know, very close minded, almost bigoted in a way. So I didn't like that at all. Um, the story itself was was fine. It, it didn't, you know, break any new ground or anything. I thought the art was fantastic. I thought the colors were fantastic. Uh, my favorite story in the book is the Batman and Black Adam story from Alex Pacnadel. Gorgeous art by Ammon Kane and Noella Pan. Uh, beautiful colors by Jordi Belair. I, I mean, I'm not surprised that we're getting the Black Adam story in Batman Urban Legends. Batman, you know, best-selling character at DC. Black Adam has a movie coming out. Perfect time to cross them over. You know, it's not like they're fighting to, alongside. This is not a team up. This is something much different. And I thought Alex Pacnadel did a fantastic job of showing what a complex past and what a complex story Black Adam has. 
you know, he, he's a, he's not a hero. He's not a villain. He's got his own responsibilities, his own obligations as the ruler of Kandak and, you know, based on its past and its history and the th things that it's gone through. Um, and I, I just thought that was really interesting. Uh, and he tempts Batman at the end of the story with some power and Batman is actually tempted. So I thought that was really interesting, a great way to, uh, to showcase what a complex character Black Adam is. Not that I didn't enjoy the first issue of Christopher Priest on Black Adam and you know, obviously Christopher Priest wrote Deathstroke for a long, long run, did a fantastic job with a, another character that lives in the gray area. Um, but man, this really made me want an Alex Pacnadel Black Adam series because he really gets who Black Adam is. You know, he's not so simple of good, bad, you know, good versus evil or whatever. He's much more complex and nu nuanced character than that. He has the arrogance, which is a downfall, has... Uh, the quick temper, which is, you know, a negative for his personality, but uh, he also cares about his people very, very much. So um, Batman, the Riddler and Penguin story by Dan Waters. I, I kind of felt like this was a throwaway story. It's really, really short. Um, it, it didn't really do much for me. I didn't particularly care for the Riley Rosmo art. Uh, I thought the colors were really kind of muddy in, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I just, I didn't get it. I, and I, I it, it's trying to do something clever, probably, and it must have gone over my head. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know. It, it just, I didn't care for it. So, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, first, I got to be very, I hate to be so dismissive of Dan Waters because I quite like most of what he's written uh, for DC. But I I also, on his, the, the, his story he wrote with uh, artist by Riley Rosmo called On His Worst Nights, I didn't get. I didn't. I didn't understand the point. It, it missed me too. I didn't get it. Uh, I will say though, as a compliment to Riley Rosmo, which uh, might you know maybe I, he, he's maybe taken a beating on some of his Harley Crane work, but we've respected his. Uh, we've gotten used to his stylistic illustrations. I, I think this is. I liked his art here. I thought it was actually pretty good. Dare I say? Uh, it's. I think it's actually. It's an improvement. I, I find it to be, uh, I thought it was actually fairly decent this time. So uh, kudos to him on that. He continues to improve. The favorite, uh, my favorite story by far in this entire Batman Urban Legends is the Black Adam story. It's, it, to me, it's incredible. I, I, one of the things that really sort of I, I take, I say with just so much regret is, my God, this really should have been a story. Uh, Alex uh, Pacnadol on uh, the story for Batman and Black Adam, th he should have been, this should have been the, the theme or the storyline for the main Black Adam series. Uh, nothing against Christopher Priest. I think he's telling a unique tale with Black Adam. But I think that with a movie coming out, uh, what's great about this uh, Black Adam and Batman story is that it takes place during Black Rain. DC Comics just released a Black Rain trade paid paperback compilation of best Black Adam stories, and Black Rain is the essential part of that. And this takes place following the, the sequences in Black Rain. And all you really need to know is that this takes place just after Black Adam is the leader of Kondak. He's a dictator. He's of Kondak. And, and Batman wants to batman is frustrated he's in gotham city he's frustrated that there's there's weapon shipping coming through gotham harbor from kandak he wants to go he wants black adam to step down and hawkman confronts Bat batman and says look batman I, you know <laughs> i thought it was just so well played i mean kudos to writer alex pacnadol for, for knowing this 
Hawk, Hawkman, he scripts a Hawkman that knows Batman. Hawkman just assumes that Batman, look, I know you probably have a protocol for taking out Black Adam, but let me tell you, it ain't going to work. All right. You might have a protocol to take out Billy Batson, but this is Teth Adam. This is Black Adam. It, it ain't going to work for him. This guy's been at it. He's immortal. He's thousands of years old. That ain't gonna work on him. And back and Hawkman tells Batman what Black Adam's weakness is, and it's his. It's his. He needs to be loved. He's got a craving to be loved. Black Adam needs to be loved. That's his weakness. And he utilizes Batman utilizes it to such great effect. And uh, the, the the battle between you know Batman sort of entices or in, sort of like sort of um, uh, lures Teth Adam, Black Adam, to to sing Shazam and assuming his Teth Adam form, and then they have a fight, uh, mano a mano, and ultimately, uh, just just the revelations here where, where Batman tells Black Adam, you know, your power isn't a deterrent, it's a provocation, and your enemies may not be able to scratch you, you're powerful, but they can hurt your people, and your people will love you, but you got to protect what you love. If you, if you love your people, protect, I'm, uh, that, that's me paraphrasing, but you can see the evolution what I liked about it is I could see the evolution of why Black Adam became, why he went from villain to anti-hero to hero. You could see it. And this, this, this is such a good, in this short story, it, uh, I thought Pactonel did such a good job of showing the evolution of Black Adam, realizing the importance that, I mean, yeah, he has people who loved him and you, and you, you protect what you love. And then you can understand why Black Adam slowly became more of a hero and less, you know, he started off as sort of a benevolent dictator or perhaps a dictator, then a benevolent big dictator. And then we know in the pages of Christopher Priest's Black Adam that perhaps there's more democratic reforms that are taking place. So I actually thought that this story works well with maybe the story that Christopher Priest wants to tell, even though they're very different and different timelines. I, I thought it worked, and I really liked it. And uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people are going to miss it because it's, in the, it's smack dab in the middle of, of these other stories, which are just inconsequential um i share your sentiment uh about um the flash story uh what i find interesting here is that it's it, it purports to be perhaps one of the first meetings between mr freeze and captain cold a captain cold mr freeze team up against batman and the flash i thought it was well done i thought uh I thought that the writer Ryan Cady did a good job nailing the characters of uh, of uh, Leonard Snart and uh, uh, Victor Freeze. The differences in their character, Snart being not a killer, Victor Freeze is a killer, and he's willing to go that extra length. Uh, I love the extra length to kill. Uh, Victor Freeze sort of teasing Snart about only being a civil engineer while he has a PhD and they got different knowledge technologies of their of their of their freeze technology and and I thought it was sort of a little tropey wrap up to the, the plot line but I thought it worked I, I thought it worked reasonably well um, the uh, the Aquaman and Mira storyline I, I echo your sentiments about Mira I thought I thought that the writer uh, Joey Esposito didn't quite get Mira but this is an early on story this take this takes place alongside continuity wise uh, just, uh, just after the events tech of comics 475 which I didn't yeah, Google it what's that yeah, the Joker fish storyline. Yeah, so I'm not sure how old that is, how many decades old that is, but I'm assuming it's probably been a few years. So, but I, I, I thought, you know, again, I, th I thought it, 
I thought it worked and it, it was fun and, uh, you know, and I actually like that. I like I like editor's notes like that. Editor's notes, DC, don't be afraid to do more of that stuff to give us readers, some sort of us long time readers, some sort of, you know, connection to where this story takes place. Because I was openly wondering if it wasn't for some of these editor's notes or some indication in the time I'm where it worked, I wouldn't have enjoyed these stories as much. But uh, overall, I thought this was, uh, you know, uh, it was saved because of the Black Adam story. I just wish I would have liked to have seen that as a, a Batman Black Adam one shot. Uh, I thought it would have been great because, you know, especially how it tied in, how, how Batman said he went to Kandak because he wanted to see how he would be like without family. And Bruce Wayne suggests, Batman suggests the only reason he's different than Black Adam or Teth Adam is because he has family where at that time Teth Adam did not. And so I thought that was a really good way to tie in DC's biggest star, Batman, with his with the biggest up-and-coming DC star, at least in the movies, Black Adam. So I thought it worked well. Yeah, Joker Fish is from 1977, if I'm not mistaken. So <laughs> wow. more, more, than a, more than a few decades. Uh, so... Yeah. Uh, all right, moving on. Wonder Woman 789. This is The Villainy of Our Fears, Part 3, written by Michael Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan, Emmanuel Lupacchino and Eduardo Panseca on pencils, Wade Von Grobiger and Julio Ferrer on inks, Tom Raban Villan on colors, and Pat Brosso on letters. What did you think? I, um... Ah, <laughs> oh, man, you know what? I had a lot of fun with this issue. I had a lot of fun with this issue. I, this issue, the villainy of our fears, part three. I, this is one of those issues where I can, I can allow myself get really depressed at how far Wonder Woman has fallen, or I can just have fun with this review. So I'm going to choose, uh, uh, I'm going to choose to have fun with this review. And I think it's awesome that Wonder Woman went from saving the multiverse to battling the vile villains of milk. The people who sell this evil milk drink. As, uh, as Siegfried said in this, vile milk drinkers. That's who the enemy is here. Villainy Incorporated employing the use of vile milk drinkers in the words of Siegfried. And uh, it's the, the characters in this series... Are, Dr. Sisko, he's he's teamed up with Dolos, the Duke of Deception. Uh, and Dolos, the Duke of Deception, I had to Google this guy because I knew I got him somewhere in my, um, you know, when's the last time I heard of this guy? It was actually in Legends of Wonder Woman, which was an alternate universe tale by Della Dahoy. I, I forget her name. I think that's her name. There was a, The Legend of Wonder Woman was the last time Duke of Dece Deception was in a comic book. It was a great series. It, it even was nominated for an Eisner. It was an alternate universe where Wonder Woman's first villain that she encounters was Dolos, the Duke of Deception. Uh, and here he's back. Normally before that, you're looking back to the 70s and into the Silver Age. And Dr. Psycho is utilizing his powers, powered through the Duke of Deception to try to really, uh, to pull one over on Wonder Woman. To what end? I don't really know. I'm not sure. Apparently the big it deal... misogyny. Yeah, misogyny. Like, yeah, I mean, again, I'm going to have fun with this. I'm not going to, you know, in all seriousness, this is so silly, it's funny. It's so, so silly. I mean, Dr. Poison. Every scene that Dr. Poison's in, she's holding up a needle like a nefarious evil person. And and uh, and then there's, uh, we, we got, uh, we, we got uh, Dr. Psycho himself, who's always got the shit-eating grin on his face. And he's he's creating all these illusions. And he's got this magic mirror, mirror where his, 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 
bizarro version of Wonder Woman that he calls Sweetheart holds up a magic mirror that he focuses his mental powers through so Dolos has more powers so that he can defeat Steve Trevor. And Steve Trevor ends up breaking his leg and Siegfried's Siegfried declares he's going to protect Steve Trevor, his newfound companion, against the vile milk drinkers. That's an exact quote. Uh, this is this is parody. This is ab- absolute parody. And if you read this with parody in mind, you're going to enjoy this comic. Straight up, straight up. Now, <laughs> I mean, look, I had fun with it, but I have to say how far the mighty have fallen. It's really hard for me not a part of me, uh, it's sort of like the Thor Love and Thunder movie. I wanted it to be a more serious movie, but it was all comedy. It's still a fun comedy, but I was expecting a little bit more serious. So that's not, doesn't mean it's bad. It's just mean I was expecting something different. And this Wonder Woman here, this is parody to me. I just want her to take, I want, I want more serious villains here. I want a little bit more verisimilitude because this is outright just absolute silliness and nonsense. Wonder Woman goes from saving the multiverse to battling vile milk drinkers, literally. This is, uh, and I said before, you know, uh, Becky, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Con- Conrad also writing battles. I said before my uh, comments about them writing Batgirls is they seem to have this propensity for writing silly things that that would think almost be for all ages and then they intersperse it with kind of serious topics like misogyny and and sexual you know innuendo and and love triangles and and that's all well and good but i'm not okay so is is it parody or isn't it and and and, and, again I, i choose to have a sense of humor about this but i personally wish that they just i i'm not getting the impression I say this with great respect. I'm not getting the impression that they're kind of, they really are just, they're not really taking this all that seriously. Because uh, this Wonder Woman is, even Wonder Woman almost doesn't really seem to take this all this seriously. And even Dolos, Dolos, all the villains here, every single villain in here just shows up. There's no development of this, this villains. Dr. Poison shows up. We know nothing about, about it. Professor Calculus, no development. Uh, Dolos, Duke of Deception, show, is mentioned at the end of the last issue. Shows up, no development. And there, uh, Dr. Psycho, we still don't know who Dr. Psycho works for. We still have no idea. Um, everything is just, everything is just sort of like throwing darts at the board. It's like they're, the clone rads are trying to get every major Wonder Woman villain they can on the page. And I don't feel it's really going anywhere. And there's fun to add here, but, you know, I really don't feel they're taking their job seriously. I, I don't. I mean, this is parody to me. This is absolute parody. And and I, I guess there's some fun in that because, like, like I said, I could, if, you know, put a couple more beer in me, I can have a lot of fun talking about this issue, how nonsensical it is. But, I mean, it's just, I'm... I'm just not clear exactly what they're trying to say or what they're trying to do here. When you think of where they started off, it off Wonder Woman went on issues of getting back to man's world only to fight vile milk drinkers. <laughs> I mean, this is, I don't know. I don't know. Help me out, Jace. I, I, uh, I'll stop talking. Yeah, well, I, I don't in any way, shape, or form think that they're not taking their job seriously. I think that they, that they're, they're putting their all into this. Unfortunately, I think it's a little scattershot um, and it's not, and it's not working. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they're not, they're not trying. I think they're, they're trying. I think, I think the failure of it is that it's not focused enough. It's, it's maybe like you said, they're, they're trying, they're trying to pay homage to things that have come in the past, like Dolos, 
um, Dr. Psycho and um, Steve Trevor and Etta Candy. And then this character, they, they created Sigmund and it's just, it's, it's too much. There's not enough focus. So then something's got to fall by the wayside and what's falling by the wayside, unfortunately is, is character development. Like you mentioned, the villains, these characters just show up out of the blue. Uh, now, granted, while she, Wonder Woman was hopping around through these different realms of mythology, she, we saw Dr. Psycho, um, but you're right. We have, we don't know who he's working for. Um, he's very much a cartoon villain as are these vile milk drinkers. Cause it, the, they hate Wonder Woman because she represents everything that's female in the world. And these are uh, misogynists and, and yeah. It, so again, to your point of trying to take on some serious topics, but um, there's a, there's a juvenile aspect to the story as well. It's the same issue with, with Batgirls. So um, hopefully they can find the tone that they want and maybe pare down the characters. E- even the, the, when I say pare down the characters, I just don't just mean on the villain side, on the supporting cast side as well. Like, let's just vote. Like, I, I just, I just want to read about Diana, and maybe Steve. Yeah, you know, or Diana and Etta Candy. Just, just give me one supporting character. Or you want to use Sigmund? Fine. Let's develop Diana and Sigmund's relationship. You know, let's let's focus here. Let's focus up because it's too all over the place, and uh, like it's 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 no different. You know, when you try to be good at 70 things, nobody's going to be good at 70 things. Focus on one thing, master that. Focus on one or two, get really good at that, um, as opposed to trying to, you know, throw all these darts at the board and, you know, see what hits the bullseye. It's not working. So, all right. Uh, Up next, we have Rogues Book 3, Assault on Gorilla City. This is from writer Joshua Williamson. It's drawn by an artist named Leo Max, colored by Jason Wordy, lettered by Hassan Otsman L. Howell. I enjoyed this. I thought it was fantastic. The art has been great throughout. Um, and the only thing that I'll say, in addition to that, is is that it goes about as well as you would expect it in terms of, hey, it's the rogues. And they're planning a complicated heist in, you know, a foreign land where they're surrounded by their enemies. It goes about as well as you would expect it to. Uh, I, th- I feel like Joshua Williamson has as good an understanding of who the rogues are, especially Captain Cold, Leonard Snart, as any writer who's ever worked on The Flash. Like, he knows the rogues in and out. And so that really allows him to... Um, to tell the story with, with a, a real degree of uh, authenticity for the rogues. And uh, I really, really enjoy it. Um, the art by Leo Max, I think it suits the tone of the story. Kind of this, you know, last hurrah rundown group of villains trying to make one last score. Um, it, it feels at times a little, like the world that that uh, Leo Max is rendering is is it's kind of running down. It's tired. You know, this is a tired world, and the the color work kind of suits that uh, tone as well because the colors are muted. They're not you know bright colors that that pop off the page, and so 
uh, I got to give a shout out to Jason Wordy for, for that as well. I really, really enjoyed this one issue to go. Can't wait to see how it all wraps up. Uh, but yeah, the, the shit hits the fan exactly as you would expect it to. You can't read this. If you're any sort of longtime reader of the flash, uh, and know who the rogues are, you can't read this in any way and be surprised at how screwed up everything gets for the rogues. Uh, they are, uh, as always, they are often their own worst enemy. So what do you think? Uh, this is, I want to be absolutely clear. This is hands down my pick of the week. This is nothing comes close to this this week. Uh, this was a rough week for DC, but this is definitely one of the bright spots. This is, uh, if this was a t- TV movie, this would be uh, Ocean's Seven, I believe. Seven characters, I think. We got Leonard Snart, Captain Cold, Lisa Lisa Snart, the Golden Glider, James Jesse's the Dexter, Ben Turner, the Bronze Tagger, Frankie Kane, Magenta, Mick Rory, Heatwave, and Evan McCullough as the mirror master. Those are the guys that are pulling off the heist, the ultimate heist of robbing Gorilla Grodd, the, uh, located uh, in the underbelly somewhere of, uh, in Gorilla, in the Gorilla City is this huge cache of gold bars that they are going to rob. And, and they are, they infiltrate Gorilla City in this issue. This third issue was so much happened in this issue. It, we have, we've got action. We've got uh, betrayal. We've got love. We've got death. We got two members of Ocean Seven. <laughs> what do you call it? The girl, uh, uh, lose their lives here. I don't even want to ruin it for people. I want people to pick this up. The 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 evolution of Leonard Snart's character, and as you said, when Joshua Lawson, he knows these characters. He knows these characters. And, you know, when they, they make it in, and with the help of the Mirror Master, they get in there and they steal these gold bars with the help of the Mirror Master's powers and Magenta's powers, which comes at a great sacrifice. And then Gorilla Grodd is married and has a son. And how that plays into the things that go wrong, because of course they go wrong. We're talking about this is a rogue story after all. Everything's to a head in this issue. This is by far the best of the of the first three issues. Everything comes to a head here, and I'm so curious to see how things wrap up. But all the action here goes up to goes up to eleven here. So uh, so much happens. So much is at stake, and in particular, the character work. You talked about Joshua Williamson. Leonard Snart is somebody who is he gave up being Captain Cold quite a while ago. He, he's coming back for one score. It's quite apparent here that he's willing to, he, you know, he purports, you think of the rogues, you think of a family and you think of Captain Cold as having a family and you think of Captain Cold. Uh, I was disappointed in Captain Cold here in a good way. I mean, this is good character work, meaning that I thought that, you know, the way Williamson scripted him, he, he put his own selfishness ahead of his own family. Whereas I know sometimes in the, in the rogues gallery, snart, I gave him more credit. He, he seemed to have more of a code of honor here. I didn't think, I think snart has become an old and bitter old man where he's, he's put aside and he's, he's become a, a, this is the worst. He's become a, a bitter old man and, and he's forgotten the importance of family in, in this story. And he, he's, util, he's using his friends for his own selfish needs, whereas he used to have more of a code of conduct. That's one thing you could always write. The rogues, the rogues had their own code. And I couldn't help but think, in my view, that Williamson very masterfully scripts a Leonard Stark that's maybe lost touch with himself a little bit in terms of what's 
at the end of the day, what the rogues always had was each other. And this is a story of the rogues coming together. But when they come together and those ties get frayed and, and they, and, and those bonds of friendship aren't what they used to be. That lies at the crux of this story that Williamson was so well. And it really comes into play in this issue. And so many moving parts, so many ridiculous coincidences that come into play. Like I said, this is a this was a, a very much a joy to read. High, high recommend for this issue. I, I This issue alone, I'm really curious to see how this is going to resolve itself. I've got some theories, but I, I don't want to say what they are but I, I think this is one where I can't say this for all of DC but this is one black label series where I will be picking up in hardcover I this this particular issue sold it for me and I echo your sentiments on Leo Max on the art coloring is great the subdued nature of the coloring the art everything it, it works very very well particularly with the scenes where they're in the room showing all the gold and the ultimately the the sacrifice of, of magenta I thought it worked very very well and uh yeah, Williamson, you know, he, he impresses me. I mean, good Lord, Joshua Williamson, that guy's a workaholic. I mean, he's he's almost single-handedly keeping DC afloat in terms of what the, the type of quality stories that I'm enjoying most from DC. A lot of them have Joshua Williamson's name attached to it. So kudos to him. Yeah, uh, he's doing a fan, fantastic job. Um, I've been a little critical of him only because I really want Dark Crisis to, to get moving and it feels like it hasn't. But yeah, he's... He's firing on all cylinders here for sure. All right, last book we're going to talk about in detail, Dreams and Nightmares. The script is by Tom Taylor along with Nicole Maines. If that name sounds familiar, she played Dreamer on um, some CW you, you, show. You mean Son of Kal-El, don't you? What did you say? Yeah, is that, you, yeah Superman, Son of Kal-El. You said Dreams, Dreams and, and Nightmares. Nightmares. You mean okay. – Yeah, that's the name of the story, Dreams oh, and Nightmares. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's Fair the enough. title of the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Taylor, Nicole Maines, uh, Clayton Henry on art, Marcelo Maiello and Matt Herms on colors, letters by Dave Sharp. What do you think? Uh, I thought that uh, the favorite part of this issue for me was the dream sequence. Uh, this issue, as you said, it this is the, the dynamic debut of the Dreamer, who, uh, full disclosure for myself, this is really my first exposure to Dreamer because I never, I, I frankly, I, I never watched... I never watched the uh, whatever CW show she was on. I, I stopped watching CW uh, because I needed to preserve my mental health. Uh, but in any event, I'm happy to report that I, I don't mind this. <laughs> I actually like Dreamer. I thought she was a good enough character. They link her to the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, she's an Altorian. And Dream Girl in the Legion of Superheroes is an Altorian. So I thought that was a nice connection to connect this Dream Girl character to her. Uh, I thought it was well done. I also thought that uh, uh, I will give credit here that Tom Taylor introduces Dreamer very quickly. I like the sort of almost um, compressed nature of the storytelling. We're not spending a lot of time with, with uh, you know, taking five or six issues to introduce a character. Dreamer just shows up in the Fortress of Solitude. And she basically warns, uh, she's, she's there to basically warn uh, John Kent as to what will happen if he doesn't stop Henry Bendix. A last issue, it was revealed that Jay Nakamura's identity was revealed to the world uh, as the leader of truth. Now Henry Bendix knows that Jay Nakamura is the leader of truth. He knows that he's the boyfriend of John Kent. And so things are really ramping up. The world's media is aware of it now. So there's politics is involved. Social media, there's a social media sort of uh, onslaught against Jay Nakamura and in 
indirectly against John Kent's Superboy as well. Remember, of course, everyone knows that John Kent is, is Superman, son of Kal-El. Now they know his boyfriend, Jen Akamura, is the leader of Truth, which is an organization that in some political circles in the DC universe is operating on its own and with fake news and everything else. It might be perceived as a terrorist organization. Henry Bendix is trying to ferment that negative publicity as, as long, uh, along with negative publicity against the heroes. And here we discover that Dreamer has possible uh, as a vision of a possible future where all the heroes of the DC universe are ultimately killed uh, by Henry Bendix. And there's a great, it's almost like a mini story within a story that I really enjoyed involving the death of the, starts off with the death of Joker uh, to lure people, lure the Justice League into Gotham City with this Joker gas uh, to seemingly kill all the citizens. Super Booper Boy, uh, John Kent arrives, sucks up all the uh, gas that is laced with kryptonite that ultimately kills him. Uh, meanwhile, the Justice League are all killed, etc., etc. Great, great art, great scenes by Clayton Henry. Clayton Henry on the art here really sold it. I thought he did a really good job. Graphic scenes of deaths of various, well, not I shouldn't say too graphic, but uh, impactful scenes of the death of various members of the Justice League. And with Henry Bendix finally getting his, his revenge in this sequence on on John Kent and uh, of course since they know what the future holds they know what they have to stop and it ultimately ends with some um, with uh, well Henry Bendix uh, realizing that Jay Nakamura is the leader of truth and of, it ends with Jay Nakamura, showing Jay Nakamura's mother who is a captive of uh, who's actually still alive we thought she was killed, killed. she's still alive uh, and is held captive by Henry Bendix and so Jay's mom is still alive and so there's a lot at stake here Henry Bendix still has his The Rising uh, the, the Rising is still an agenda that has yet to see fruition Henry uh, Jay Nakamura's mom's alive there is more character work here there's uh, for fans of the John Kent Jay Nakamura shipping there's you know John Kent is accused of uh, dam damseling, damseling Jay Nakamura, wanting to protect him. So there's some, you, you know, that there's a, you know, more of the bonding and the affection between John Kent and Jay Nakamura is on full display. And Dreamer has some fun with that and teases the two of them. And so there's decent character work here. Great dream sequence. You, you know, we now know what's at stake. We know Henry Bendix is a force to be reckoned with because we know what he's capable of because of the dream sequence. I personally really like this issue, even though it was a dream scene sequence. I shouldn't say I really like the issue. I'll say I, I liked it better than most because we're getting a little bit more action, even if it's a dream sequence. I feel that we've gotten almost, dare I say, I can't believe I'm saying this, almost too much character work, too much in, in the previous 12 issues. I kind of like this issue being a little bit more action, even if it is a dream sequence. So I kind of like that there's a pushing of that envelope here. And kudos to uh, uh, co-writer uh, Tom Taylor, kudos to uh, Mains. Because I think she co-writes, she co-writes it with them. Yeah, Nicole Nicole Maines is the co-writer with Tom Taylor. She's the actress that plays Dreamer, and uh, so overall, I was I was actually pleasantly surprised. I mean, full disclosure, I was not expecting much of this issue. I was I was prepared to be disappointed, but I was actually pleasantly surprised. So, what do you think? Why were you prepared to be disappointed? Well, because I actually well uh, I actually thought this was going to be just like another glorified Pride issue. Uh, about just uh, I, and 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 to my and and to be quite frank, this has this has nothing to do with that. This is just good story, 
good character work. In fact, uh, I read an interview with Nicole Maines. She talked about the importance of focusing on story, not sexual orientation. And that's her goal, working with Tom Taylor. And it shows here. There's there's no, uh, not that matters if it's mentioned, but this is just a good, this is good character work, good story. Uh, we don't, you know, this, we, we shouldn't be focusing on the sexuality of the character. We should just be focusing on the quality of their character, which what this story brings out. And so I guess that's my own cynicism with what I, that I came into this story with, and that's on me. But uh, like I said, this was a really good surprise, and I full compliments to Nicole Maines. I think she did a fantastic, fantastic job. And, and if, you know, and, uh, you know, again, I, I would still like, there are issues I have with the slowness. I'd like to see this this the plot line progress a little bit faster but this is this is better than i thought it was and it just goes to show you that uh, you know uh shame on me i i uh i but i got no problem putting my foot in the mouth this is better than i thought it was going to be <laughs> all right fair enough i didn't have any freaking i didn't think it would not be anything but what it was uh which is a tom taylor son of kal-el issue um, I, just because they were bringing Dreamer in, I didn't think it would be over the top. I mean, it's it's always been somewhat of a political comic in, in terms of Tom Taylor is going to explore societal issues in his writing because that's what he does. Uh, and I, you know, I appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, I thought it, it did a fantastic job. I thought that uh, the characterization for Dreamer was, was really interesting. You know, it didn't come out with a, a lot of bluster or um, – overconfidence or anything like that. It's clear that she knows she has a lot to learn about being a hero and about using her powers. And she was uh, humble about that and sort of rightly self-aware. And I love that Nicole Maines, the actress that played Dreamer on the uh, CW shows, you know, had a chance to, to give her input and, you know, flesh that out. So I think that's, that's really interesting. I, I would like to see more of that. Uh, I know that the actor that played Luke Fox in the Batwoman show wrote, uh, I, think Cam, I think his name's Camrus Johnson. Uh, he wrote the, one of the Batwing stories that we got in Batman Urban Legends earlier this year. So uh, yeah, I, I, I just, I really like that um, because as an actor, part of your craft is to really get in the mind of the character, become the character. So who better to help flesh out that character? Plus, they may have their own fans that they can, you know, bring uh, to the comics. Can shine a spotlight. Hey, I help co- co-write this issue, pick it up, and you know, maybe we'll bring new people into uh, to comics that way. Um, so yeah, I thought this issue was was fine. I mean, I still have sort of the same issues with the series that I've had from the beginning. Uh, I don't feel like. John has earned the right to be called Superman, but um, sort of what we suspected last issue with the revelation of Jay Nakamura's uh, identity as the leader of truth is, is, is already playing out. So a bit, a bit predictable in that way. Um, so I guess we'll see what's going to happen. I enjoyed the dream sequence as well. Um, I, I really appreciated that a very short timeline, right? Like you're talking about, you want things to move a little faster, uh, you know, she didn't have this dream and say, yeah, this is, you know, could come to pass at some point. She's like, this is in the next week. So it definitely added some stakes to the story. Um, and maybe that'll cause the pacing to uh, to pick up a little bit. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, Clayton Henry art is Clayton Henry art. I mean, he's, he's a fantastic artist. So, um, 
he does have a certain look about it, especially the way he draws faces. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of his style, so I didn't mind it. Uh, I thought it was good. All right, that's going to do it for the issues we're going to talk about in detail. There are a few other books out from DC this week that we want to talk about, though. Um, there are some reprints. So we've got from the DC versus Vampires corner of the DCU, I guess you'd say, uh, two different editions that are reprinting three issues. So we have DC versus Vampires, the Coffin Edition, trade paperback, which collects issues one through three. And then we have DC versus Vampires, Crypt Edition, trade paperback, which collects uh, issues four through six. So they each collect three. And uh, if you're, you're curious what's been going on, you want to get caught up, it's a great way to do it you know, relatively inexpensively. Um, I, I did reread them just because it was right there in front of me. I'm like, well, you know, we're six, seven issues in now. Let me go back and reread these first six issues because they're right here um, <laughs> on my on my screen as I'm reading everything else. Maybe I, I've been too harsh on DC versus Vampires. Maybe I'll like it more than I than I did previously. So I do. It did refresh my memory, obviously, with things that have gone on. Um, I have a better understanding and and. Uh, you know, it's, it's fresh in my, my mind. What's happened. I don't like it anymore. It's still, I still have the same complaints about it. (laughs) Uh, But I will say that if you just read that main series and don't bother with any of the rest tangential stuff, at least the timeline makes more sense. So yeah. Uh, Anyway, in addition to that, we have a, uh, another port poster portfolio this week. This time it's from J.H. Williams, the third with a lot of his Batwoman work. So I'm going to seriously give thought, so picking that up, although I don't have really room for it anywhere to display, um, but we'll see. Uh, we also have the Injustice Year Zero Complete Collection trade paperback. If you're a fan of the Injustice game or the Injustice comics that Tom Taylor wrote, that is coming out uh, as well. And then finally, we have the hardcover of Beast Boy Loves Raven, which is part of that DC young adult line written by Cami Garcia with art by Gabrielle Piccolo. So that does it for your uh, your DC books this week. Uh, Rocky's fave was Far and Away, Rogues. Um, mine, I you know, I got to give the nod to that uh, Dark Crisis Superman story. Um, I just I just loved it, man. I loved seeing father and son. Uh, so I got to give it to to that. I, the Aquaman story was fine, um, but just based on the strength of that. Uh, that Superman story um, with honorable mention to that Batman Black Adam story in, in Urban Legends. I thought that was really, really good as well. So, uh, all right. Anything to add as we're wrapping up here, Rocky? Uh, well, we would be lax if we didn't mention by far the most important key appearance of the week was Lula LaRue, the uh, sword swallower of Batgirls. That's got to be I'm a collector's item right out. there and there. So. <laughs> trying to block that out of my mind. <laughs> and and the, vile, the vile milk monsters of uh, Wonder Woman 789. <laughs> so, so bad watching her reach down her gullet to pull the sword out. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's going to do it, everybody. Again, apologies. Sorry, Rocky's mic was kind of going crazy there at times uh we'll get that figured out for next time uh so that's going to do it don't forget to head over to youtube if you're listening to us on the audio only podcast 
Uh, head over to YouTube, do a search for Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point. Subscribe, like this video, comment, ring the notification bell. You guys know what to do. Uh, conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube, make sure you go and do a search for the Comic Source wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the rest of the content. So that's going to do it for this episode. We appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.